This is chapter 11 of You Are Not Alone. I am okay right now. Part 1. I'm the reason you sick ones pray to God as they lie there still. I'm the reason they cry out because I kill. Hello and welcome to You Are Not Alone, a 1v1 horror actual play podcast. I'm Blaine, your host and RPG-loving friend. The last two episodes were a little weird, right? I really hope you enjoyed them. There's a big project that I've been working on with Chris, who is my guest for Chapter 9, Death is Patient. I can't say any more than that right now, but fear not. This will make sense soon. Just a reminder, I have a Patreon. It's at patreon.com slash Blaine C. Martin. If you like the show, please consider donating, even $1 a month. There are a lot of little costs that come along with running a podcast, and any support really helps keep this going. If you like the show, but aren't in a position to support financially, you can leave a rating or review on any podcatcher that allows them, even if it isn't the one you use to listen. These really help new listeners find us, and it would mean the world to me. If you want to reach out to suggest a game, be a guest, or just say hi, you can email me at blaine at youarenotalonepod.com or on Twitter at notalone underscore horror, a new name for the same Twitter account. I would really love to hear from you. For this episode, I got to sit down with Rev from The Crit Show. I really recommend checking out Rev's podcast. It is really, really good. It's a monster of the week and powered by the Apocalypse podcast. We played Trophy by Jesse Ross. Trophy is so good, y'all. We talk a good bit about it in the opening, but a brief summary. It's a modification of the Cthulhu Dark System, used to tell stories about treasure hunters entering into a forest that does not want them there. The design of the game is simple and elegant, and the way the GM designs incursions, the adventures that the players go on, is really incredible. It's a strategy that I know I am going to use for most games I run from here on out. Trophy is available in Codex Dark 2, which you can get by heading over to TrophyRPG.com. Trophy Gold just appeared in Codex Gold, which should be coming to DriveThruRPG soon. It's a slightly beefier version of Trophy, usable to play OSR-style fantasy games. Keep an eye out for that, and more exciting news about Trophy in the future. With all that out of the way, let's get started. This week, as a guest, I have Rev from The Crit Show. Hey Rev, how's it going? Hey, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you so much for being on. I'm really excited. I've been jonesing to play this game uh, for a while, and I'm excited that someone finally uh, took me up on on the bait. Yeah, I'm I'm equal parts excited and terrified. (laughs) Yeah, when we talked about some of the fears you would be interested in exploring, Trophy is basically a role-playing game built around all of those. Yes, yes. So I'm really excited to to get a chance to play this with you. Uh, to start, why don't you just tell folks who are listening who you are, what you do, and where they can find you on the interwebs. Yeah, so uh, as you said, I'm Rev. I'm the host and GM of The Crit Show, which is an actual play podcast where we play Monster of the Week. In the later seasons, we actually branch into other Powered by the Apocalypse games. 
but it is still under the same story arc. That's a, this is the same main story. And you can find us at the com. You can find us on Podbean and iTunes, Facebook, Twitter, all that good stuff. Awesome. How are you? I mean, I imagine you are enjoying Monster of the Week quite a bit since you've made a podcast around it. But uh, what do you think overall of the system? Oh, I really enjoy it. You know, I grew up playing Earth Dawn, and then I learned Pathfinder. I've played D&D really three or four times in my life. And so getting a chance to sit down and play a Powered by the Apocalypse game, it really was in the wheelhouse of the stuff that I love. I'm a actor in my background, and a couple of the people on the show are improvisers. And so it just worked really well for the way that we all work together. Uh, and it allows me to kind of edit the show almost like a radio play so that if it's not, you know, I always say if it's not heart, humor, or horror, it gets cut out so you don't have a lot of crunchy game mechanics talk. But even with that in mind, we still, the first story arc, we try to make it so that anybody listening, by the time that they are done with that first story, they walk away feeling like they could play the game. That's awesome. That's definitely something that's it's great to find actual plays like that because I know that's a large part of why I use actual plays is if there's a game coming up that I know I'm running and I've never played it or run it before, it's nice to be able to go and listen to some other people do it. Yeah, it's really cool. On our, uh, We have a Patreon where we do a couple other bonus games and uh, we have a Discord for that Patreon and they have formed together because a lot of them want to play the game, but they don't live near enough people to play. And so now they run almost weekly online games uh, where they have, I think, six or seven keepers now. And then there's like 36 players and the keeper will post a a story hook and you'll sign up if you want to be in that story hook. And each keeper is the head of a department in a giant organization. So they each have a section that they deal with. So like one person's department is deep and they deal with all the RC stuff. One person is lore and they deal with all like the mythical creatures. So they each have a kind of theme for their for their mysteries. So it's really cool. Oh, that is that is so awesome. I love I love what the Internet has been able to, to give us because, I mean, I know I've been playing role playing games for 25 years now. And yeah, 20 years ago when you didn't have a group, you were kind of just screwed. Yeah. And now the internet, the ability to do even just to play at all online is amazing. But having communities like that where everyone's telling this kind of story that all weaves in and out of itself is it's so cool to hear about. Yeah. And they they did that on their own, which was what was really cool. Just one day I got into the discord and they were talking about setting up the page for it. Um, And so I actually joined. I played one of the missions. It was a ton of fun. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah, I love I love Powered by the Apocalypse, and I, I got to finally play Monster of the Week maybe about two months ago, and I it's one of my absolute favorite PBTA games now. Like, it's yeah. just so much fun to be able to do both good horror and, like, camp at the same time. Yeah. Because I love, I mean, I, I, I'm a horror junkie, and I love, like, good psychological horror but I also love just a good kind of terrible campy horror movie. Yeah. And Michael Sands is such a fan of the genre that it really feeds into the tropes very well. It does. Yeah. Um, we had, uh, we had Michael on the season finale of season one and he played the crooked. Uh, that's uh, it was awesome. very I'm cool to see him to play. Have to track that episode down and listen to it. Cause it's, it is just such a fantastic game. All right. Awesome. So we are going to play Trophy, which is, I'd said in the introduction, it's designed by Jesse Ross, who's one of the lead graphic designers for 
the Gauntlet Codex and part a big part of the Gauntlet community. And he released this game that's based off of Cthulhu Dark, which is just a super stripped down. You can see that there's a lot of Powered by the Apocalypse fingerprints on this game. But so it just uses three six-sided dice. Anytime there's a challenge, you get a die if it is something related to your occupation or background. You get another die if you take a devil's bargain that I will offer when you have to make a roll. And if you are willing to risk your mind or body in order to succeed, you can take the ruin die. Whenever you roll, if at least one of your dice are a four or higher, you succeed. On a four or five, it's with a cost. On a six, it is a full success. And on a one to three, it's a failure. So it kind of borrows. I love that kind of powered by the apocalypse mixed success concept. Yeah. And then if the ruined die, the off-colored die, is tied for highest or highest, your ruin goes up. And if you hit a six ruin, you become one with the forest. So uh, we decided to do character creation on the air because character creation for trophy is roughly four choices. Yeah. (laughs) So let's do that real quick. And let's start with just uh, what, what, what is your character's name? Uh, I th- I'm just going to go straight from the sheet for everything. Uh, so I'm going to do Orlin. Perfect. And then you pick an occupation, which in the base version of this offers the leech, the ranger, the sellsword, or the sorcerer. I think I'm going to go the ranger, skilled in beasts, hunting, and traps. I think that is an excellent choice. And then you get to pick a background. My initial thought was retired soldier. I like that. I think that's a good good kind of pairing with the ranger. Yeah. The other options are reformed thug, expelled apprentice, escaped cultist, Disinherited noble or defrocked priest, um, which are all fun options. But. Yeah. All right. So Orlin is a retired soldier who now lives as a ranger. And the last main choice you make is your drive. And this is the thing that keeps pushing you into the heart of the forest, despite your your mind telling you that that is probably the worst idea humanly possible. I think it's going to be by your brother's freedom from Barsol Prison. I like that. Uh, so what is your brother's name? Uh, his name is Basso. And does Orlin know what Basso did to get him locked up in Barsol Prison? He does not. He got out, you know, he has been out for quite a while and just got a phone call, not even from his brother, but from the state essentially saying that he had been taken and that um and that they had not found a way to uh, kind of expedite him and so the only way that he has found that might be successful is just a lot of money to the right people i like that i think that is a good hook so then the last by the book question is does orlin know any rituals <laughs> so rituals are a thing this game adds that are kind of magical powers and we can frame those kind of however we want. It might be pure magic. It might be uh, some special trick that Orlin learned over time, uh-huh. um, but they give you some kind of special power. But for each ritual, you know, your ruin starts one higher. Yeah. So looking at this list, there's bind channel 
hollow, inhabit, project, and summon. The one that makes sense to me would be bind, that along with his ability to make traps that maybe he knows some, whether we want to go into a, a slightly magical world where he knows some runes that are on the rope, or if it's a matter of just special knots that people can't, or people or things can't get out of, but bind makes sense to me to go with the traps. I think that's a good one. And I think we can kind of in play feel yeah. that out. Uh, certainly it can be magic. It doesn't, like I said, it doesn't have to be though. I mean, I, I, I have no problems with a little bit of magical realism. Yeah. Um, and like you mentioned, kind of almost runecraft is kind of a, I, I like that idea a lot where it's kind, a, kind of a low key magic. Uh, I'm kind of torn. I don't think I'll do three. The other one might be possible would be either project or hollow. And I'm just thinking again of the background of of being a retired soldier and now being a ranger and knowing how to see places from a distance that he's not at or doesn't have access to or, you know, stunning something so that it is kind of out of its senses, out of its mind for for a moment as a spirit would be if it was pushed out of a body. Yeah, I think both of those kind of play really well into Orlin's kind of overarching concept. And they are both uh, obviously good rituals. The, I guess the question is, do you want to start with a ruin of three or not? Yeah. Um, it's a real difficult question to answer. Yeah. And the one nice thing is if your ruin starts a little bit higher, it's a little bit harder to gain ruin. Oh, fair. Because if it's basically if you're – I will sometimes ask you to make a ruin roll outside of other rolls, which is just you've seen something absolutely horrifying. But it's always if the ruin die is higher than your current ruin. Mm-hmm. So starting with a three ruin means that you're probably going to gain ruin a little bit less. But you also are starting closer to the max. Uh, I think that, you know, with that in mind, I think I actually will do all three. Just because if the idea is that, you know, as you see awful things, you get more ruin. um, I think that he has acquired some ruin from his time as a soldier. Like, I think he retired not at a young age. That okay. he is, you know, he is in his his late thirties, early forties, and so he has seen and done things, whether supernatural or other, that have gotten him to this state already. But with it comes a little bit of knowledge. I like that kind of the the grizzled cop motif. Yeah. Uh, uh, so yeah, I'll go with bind, hollow, and project. Excellent, and then that will start you at a ruin of four. Um, it's horrifying other, looking at my sheet and seeing only two squares left to mark off before I go mad and run into it the woods. <laughs> a little, uh, a little daunting. The other thing that this game does is there is, there is a chance to reduce your ruin. Uh, when your ruin hits five, you can do something that acts in the benefit of the forest. And if you do that, you can roll a die, and as long as it is less than your ruin, your ruin goes down one. So okay. You can kind of hover at four slash five for quite some time. Okay. 
And again, as your ruin gets higher, it gets harder and harder to uh, to gain more ruin. So unless your dice are very angry at you. Yeah. Which I if, if you hit six ruin by the second scene, I don't know what we'll do. <laughs> very short um, episode. <laughs> but uh, But hopefully that won't happen. All right. So I think that's, oh, the last thing that isn't on the character sheet, but that I would like to know since this is not a visual medium, is can we get a description of what Orlin looks like? Yeah, he uh, is about 5'10", uh, 190 pounds. He has very salt and pepper stubble on his face. His hair is pretty cleanly cut, but it's not military cut anymore. And he is in boots and a like a thin jacket, uh, almost kind of like what's in style now, like the military jackets that aren't actual military jackets. Okay. Um, and then he's got a pack over one shoulder, and then he's got very deep green eyes uh, with a, a scar that is right next to his temple on the right side. Excellent. How did Orlin get the scar next to his temple? I think that he got it before he knew how to properly bind things that he had trapped something and thought he was safe uh, and it got out and it was able to get a hit on him before it made its way out of the kind of small building that they were in. Excellent. All right. So I think that's everything we need about Orland to start. All right. So Orlin's brother Basso is in Barcel prison for some unknown crime. And Orlin is looking for a quick way to make some money to grease the right hands. And you have heard rumors that in the Croivois forest, there's a building at the center that has information in it that could be sold to the right person for quite a sum of money. And so Orlin finds himself on an old cobblestone road and ahead of you is the entrance to the Croivois forest. And it is almost ominous, almost like a mall that is opened up in the center of this forest. And this path looks like it leads into its heart. What does Orlin do? He's standing there looking into the dark forest and he reaches down into a pant pocket and absentmindedly unfolds a piece of gum that he tucks into his mouth uh, as he's been trying to give up smoking. And he shifts a couple things around on his back as he adjusts his backpack. And he checks his canteen once more to make sure that there's water in it. And then he turns his head to the side a little bit, and you hear kind of a crack uh, as a spot where he's got some tension in his neck pops. And he takes a deep breath and starts to walk down the path. All right, we see Orlin walk down this cobblestone path and enter into the forest. 
And it's at this point that the game asks me to tell you this. In the end, the forest claims everyone who enters. Most never return. Those that do come back with their minds and bodies broken. Fight to survive, but know that you will be marked. You will be claimed. You will be the forest's trophy. So Orlin enters into the woods. And we'll say, I know it'd be crazy to go in in the middle of the night. So I think that we'll say it's probably like mid-afternoon. You know that if you're going to find this building and explore, it needs to be nighttime at that point. Because people patrol these woods. You don't want anyone around to potentially stop you. But at the same time, you want to give yourself enough time to get there with at least some daylight. And so the woods around you as you first enter are a little bit more sparse. And so amber rays of sunshine kind of cut through and cast crisscrossed patterns on this old cobblestone path. And the cobblestones kind of break up more as you get a little bit further into the forest Roots have overtaken them. You're not sure when this road was built, but it is definitely old. And you notice first a sound like breaking branches. And you kind of stop in your tracks at that point. And you hear off to the side more. It's it's a loud sound of both kind of pain and just wilderness being trampled about. What do you do? I think I try to take a moment and listen to see if I can figure out if the the pain sound sounds familiar. Is it the sound of a deer that has been injured? Is it you know? Is it a, an animal sound that I recognize? As a ranger, you most certainly recognize this. It sounds like an elk. Probably, maybe a buck, some kind of something related to a deer, at least. And it is making this sound. You can't quite tell. Maybe it got caught in a trap. Maybe it got shot by a hunter. But whatever it is, it is injured and it is off to the side of the road. I think that I would go that direction. And as I step off the path, I would start looking around to see if I can see any tracks of some kind of a predator. Because um, if there's something out here that is you know, able to take down an elk, I want to be aware of it so that I can kind of plan for how I need to move, you know, what kind of sense I need to try to cover up. Because I'm not... Because I don't think that even despite doing research before coming, that he could get a clear sense of the wildlife in this area yeah that makes sense you never quite know even even if this area is known for any specific type of wildlife it really does vary from kind of area to area within that ecosystem yeah so you you look around and i mean you have done this quite a bit and you don't see any tracks that look like anything predatory um, you see, I mean, a lot of standard kind of small game tracks. You see what look like are probably a few tracks of, of humans who have come through here. 
or people that have come through here play so many fantasy games that I'm used to saying human. <laughs> it sounds weird when you're playing in like a, a more realistic setting. Yeah. People who have come through here, you see certainly some uh, deer and elk tracks, but nothing, nothing like a bear or any kind of wild cat or anything that would put you on guard. Okay. And see, I think with that knowledge, I would press forward then see if I can get closer to the sound. Okay, you move closer, and it's not terribly far into the woods that you find the first signs of first very fresh elk tracks, and then not too far beyond, you find a small, very small clearing, and you see the source of the noise, which is, as you suspected, an elk, and it looks like it is caught in some kind of hunting trap, and it is very injured. And you notice first that its antlers are a strange color. They appear to be almost a, a translucent amber color. And then you notice that coming from the animal's wounds, it almost looks like sap, but not blood. It is a kind of thick amber fluid that is coming out of its wounds. I think that as I stand in this little bit of a clearing, I don't think I can help but step closer to the, the animal seeing this strange color, you know, the blood of animals, even sometimes of people is not an unusual sight for Orlin. And so it, I think it's, too strange to ignore and i don't think that i get close enough to it to to touch it but close enough to check the ground to see if there's any near it okay and you see i mean around it 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 seems to have calmed a bit in the time it took you to get from the road to here um but you see the signs of kind of thrashing from when it first got caught in the trap and you see, kind of leading up to where the trap was set. Actually, I'm going to have you give me a roll. Okay. So I think I mean I, this is going to be regarding the tracks and whatnot. So both either your occupation or your background makes sense, but particularly your occupation. So you're going to get that die. As far as a devil's bargain goes. I think that right now this this elk is so caught up in kind of its death throes that it hasn't noticed you yet. But if you want to get that extra die, you can have have the elk notice you. I don't think I want it to notice me. I think that I am uneasy about why this animal looks so strange that I'm also on guard because I don't necessarily want to make my presence known to a hunter if they're out here you know someone has set this trap and so i don't want to um to alert anybody who's out here to the presence of a stranger okay um so you certainly you don't have to take the devil's bargain and the devil's a little bit more on the devil's bargains just mechanically as anytime yeah. you make a roll i will give you one oh, okay. um, and if you want to take it you can and you get an extra die and whatever the devil's bargain is that will happen whether or not your role is successful. The devil, if, if you take the devil's bargain, it is going to happen. Uh, okay. 
but you don't have to. You never have to actually take it. You can also, if if there's something you think is potentially interesting, either a change to my bargain or a separate bargain, um, you can certainly also kind of throw that out yourself. Okay. Um, if it's something that like you, if it's so close to something you'd be willing to take, then we can kind of haggle on the devil's bargain a little bit. Uh, okay, cool. And then uh, the final choice is to decide whether this is something you are willing to risk your body and mind for. Uh, no, I don't think so. I think that, um, you know, <laughs> this is just kind of a passing interest. You know, it's, it is curiosity. It is not dire. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. That is a very difficult question to answer yes to. Yeah. But should you ever answer yes, you will also get your ruined die. So you're going to get the one die. So give that a roll. All right. Okay, so that is a six. So you get exactly what you want with uh, with no consequences. Oh, okay. So you find footprints around that are human, that are you can tell immediately, obviously, someone with a similar background to yours who knows the woods well and has tried to cover these footprints leading up to the trap in some way to not rouse suspicion. You are guessing, based on that information, that these traps are probably set as much to keep people out of the woods or more so to keep people out of the woods than they are to catch an animal in some way. Uh, okay. Uh, I think that Orlin stands there as he is, you know, looking at these tracks and the marks around and he shakes his head a little bit. You know, I don't think that that is something he had planned for was like, Oh, that there might be people out here who are actively trying to keep away people. And so he's definitely not going to, you know, let the animal loose or anything because he doesn't want to tip off that knowledge to someone that, that he is present. And so I think that he tries to cover his tracks on his way back to the path. Okay. I'm I'm not even I'm not going to make you roll for that. I think you, uh, as both a soldier and a ranger, are more than proficient at kind of sub- subtly covering the tracks that you've left. But it does certainly seem suspicious. Also, potentially a good sign about what this forest holds that if if other people are trying to keep folks out, that there might be something of interest deeper in the forest. Yeah, that's true. Certainly, certainly not. And this is from what you understand of this forest. It is, you know, open. The paths are open at least during the day for folks to come in and wander through the forest. You haven't heard much of people going off the paths here outside of the occasional hunter maybe coming. So this is certainly kind of an unexpected turn of events okay um but so you back away from the elk like i said it is it is very near to death now so it is not really thrashing like it was and as you back away and begin to cover your tracks the the elk kind of sits up and you don't know if it's looking at you it doesn't act in a way 
that feels you've experienced animals uh, as a as a ranger i imagine you've done a lot of hunting mm. um and you've experienced animals in this kind of phase of approaching death and it it doesn't act like it has noticed you it doesn't freak out or anything like that but it does look at you and you notice that its eyes have turned the kind of deep translucent amber that its horns were made of and then it lays down and it's quiet I think that he stands for a moment and just listens he has never known what exactly to say when an animal has either passed or has been killed. You know, he always tries to do it with a purpose. Uh, and so instead of taking something, you know, from another group of saying that they might use or something, he has just always used a moment of silence. And then he heads back towards the path. All right. Orland finishes covering his tracks and gets back to the cracked cobblestone path. And I imagine begins heading deeper into the woods. Yeah. You spend maybe about an hour slowly working your way deeper into the woods. And at this point now, about an hour in, the cobblestone path that you're following is almost entirely gone. The cobblestones now that are there are cracked and falling and covered in weeds and receding into the dirt. And it is at about this point that looking ahead, it's now maybe about four o'clock and the, the sun is still giving you some light, but it is certainly getting darker. And you look ahead and see that from this point on, it becomes more or less a dirt path. I think I move forward and again, check the road, um, that dirt path to see what kind of tracks that I see. I think this is a moment of just kind of standing and checking all the cardinal directions uh, because there's something about, oh, this is no longer upkept by people that always adds a little level of danger in his head. And so I think that he is kind of doing his due diligence of looking around off the side of the road, looking back down the path he has come and checking the dirt path, you know, as it starts for tracks, just to get a sense of what kind of movement might come through here. Okay. Yeah. So you, uh, you look, North and you see the dirt path in front of you and you look south and you see the cobblestones east and west, the woods kind of directly to either side of the path. The trees are a little bit smaller, a little more sparse, but it doesn't take long looking in in either direction to see that it gets pretty dense pretty quickly. Looking at the path itself, you see a decent number of footprints from people this is this seems to be a point where a lot of a lot of folks turn around and don't head any deeper in but there are a decent number of footprints that lead deeper into the woods it certainly looks like at least some 
slightly more adventurous hikers probably continue on. You see uh, the footprints of some deer, some small game. You do see, and they look pretty old, the tracks of a bear. It doesn't look like this this path has seen anything that large anytime recently, but they are there. Yeah, I think that with the appearance of, you know, what would be hiker tracks or just tracks in general, that he is not at a point yet where he decides to get off of the beaten path. I think he has a sense in his head that at some point that will happen, but he's probably planning on that for once it gets to the point where this path should be closed. All right, that makes sense. So you continue forward uh, taking the path. And it doesn't look, this this part of the path looks like it's probably less maintained, but it's still like they keep they keep it relatively trimmed. There are some weeds and everything, but mostly it's off to the sides of the path that are, are getting a little bit more overgrown. So you continue forward and you travel a little bit deeper into the woods. And this path leads out into what is a relatively large clearing. And uh, the trees kind of naturally make their way around in the center, a large stone, a boulder uh, of some sort that is just an absolutely gigantic boulder. And uh, you see kind of just giving a cursory glance around that there are paths that lead east, west, and north. So you have some options as far as leaving this this clearing. But that isn't the strange part about this clearing. The stone in the center appears to be covered in a mass of insects. And you're too far. It's a very large clearing. You're too far to necessarily identify them from this distance. Um, but you see it creates this almost surreal effect of like a rippling of the surface of this stone as just this mass of insects crawl over it. I think that I make my way around the outside of the clearing trying to, you know, I don't want to get too close to all of those moving bugs because something that would attract that many insects seems like it's got to be something that is, you know, they're feeding off of, or it just seems like you said, unnatural. It seems strange. Uh, so I'm trying to, to get around to the Northern path, just even to see this from a different angle. Okay. As you move along the clearing, the, Again, the stone, you keep kind of eyeing it, and it's just this weird rippling. The insects seem to be almost the same color as the stone, and it creates this almost nauseating vertigo feeling of watching this stone that is a thing that represents permanency, kind of undulating and moving in strange ways. And you continue to make your way around the clearing's edge. And you pass the uh, the 
path that leads west, and you look in, and it looks just like the path that you came in through, leading out to the other side of the woods. And you make your way to the northern kind of path that leads into this clearing, and the bugs haven't seemed to take notice of you. They don't do anything other than kind of crawl over this rock. But you are at the northern exit. Uh, I think at this point, you know, watching this thing with this sick fascination, but having gotten to the clearing, I think that he steps off of the path five or six feet so that there is, you know, some trees and stuff between him and this rock. And tries to project. He wants to try to see if he can get a closer look at this rock while not being in a line of sight with it. That seems like a uh, a good plan. All right, so I will. I'm going to say because you're trying to uh, observe this natural phenomenon that your ranger occupation will give you a die. Okay. You are going to have to roll the ruin die because you're attempting a ritual. Yeah. Um. Let me think about a devil's bargain. I think this is another, at least this early on, I think that the the devil's bargain would be that you risk now that you're off the path and into the woods being noticed by some kind of wildlife in the woods itself. Yeah, I think that stepping off the path that is a... I think that that is a risk he was willing to take. Okay. So that means you will get all three dice. Okay. And you'll roll those and we'll figure out what the attention of the wildlife looks like after we see uh, the results. But you get to roll all three. Okay. And then we'll look at the highest die among them. All right. So the highest die is the black die, which is my ruined die. It's actually, well, it's tied, so I have a five, a five, and a one. All right. So your ruin is going to go up one. Okay. But you are going to uh, get what you want with some kind of consequence. So you, you, what, what does it look like when you project? So I think what happens is that he reaches up and touches that scar on his temple and it almost slightly illuminates like a, a real, real light blue. And he closes his eyes and then he opens them again. And they are translucent, but almost in the way that the animal at the beginning was, but okay. that they are, but that they are a blue as well. And at, at this point he is now seeing to some place that he has seen before but is not currently at. Okay. So Orlin touches the scar and it illuminates and your eyes go this light translucent blue color. And all of a sudden you, it feels like you are standing next to the rock, but you're not there. You are safe, relatively safely in the woods. And you see that the, insects crawling all over 
the face of this rock are fireflies. Thousands and thousands and thousands of fireflies. And as you are witnessing these fireflies crawl, suddenly they all take to the air. And the entire clearing is lit up in this bright amber color of a firefly's bioluminescence. And the rock itself, even though it's gray, for a moment looks like that color of amber because it reflects back all of these amber lights. And then suddenly, the clearing is filled with a sound that Orlin thinks for a moment might be cricket or cicada chatter. But Orlin has spent enough time in the woods to know what those two sound like. And it's not. It's the sound of radio static. And then suddenly, almost as suddenly as they all took flight and lit up, this clearing in amber, they all land back on the rock and go back to crawling over the face of it. And Orlin comes back into his own body and his eyes return to a normal color. And you realize that there's something behind you. I think that I slowly try to move the hand from my head down to the knife on my belt as I move very slowly to turn around. All right. You turn around and maybe five or six feet away from you, there's a large elk. And much like the elk that you you found in the clearing before this elk has horns that look like they're made out of translucent amber and eyes that are that same strange yellow color and they look at you with an intelligence that you have never really seen in an animal before like it like it knows you, like it knows why you're here. And it's just staring. What do you do? I think that when he sees the intelligence that I stop going for the knife and I pause both hands out to present that they are empty. I I made a mistake, didn't I? I I should have freed the one of you I saw before. It looks at you and it lowers its head for a moment, almost as if it's nodding in agreement. And it looks back up and you see tears that look almost like tree sap that are a thick, viscous amber, almost like the blood 
of the elk you saw before. They are running down from the corner of its eyes. And it turns and heads back deeper into the woods. And Orlin, I think I just stand there for a moment. And I have this strange feeling that having seen these fireflies and, and their the color that they put off and the color with the elks and that radio static, like I realize that I am here and I'm not supposed to be. And it feels like something else is too. Like I feel like I've stepped into the middle of maybe a confrontation between this forest and something else. And I don't think he knows how else to explain it other than that. But he like feels like those fireflies just told the forest someone was here. And that I assumed, you know, people being kept out of the forest might be to, to save some kind of monetary treasure, this, you know, piece of knowledge that I want to sell. I've seen enough weird things in my life that I can't just ignore like a strange encounter like that. And so I think that I am filled with this strange and possibly incorrect idea that I'm okay right now, that there might be someone else in here who is, is killing these creatures or hunting them. And that maybe there's a way to stop that. You know, I think that he realizes that the idea of not being known in the forest is is so rare. Any encounter that he's been in, if someone knows their environment, they know you're there no matter how good you think you are. And he let his old skills give him a false sense of security maybe I think that makes sense I think that's a very logical path for someone who is that attuned to nature uh, yeah. their mind to go down you do notice as you're staring off after the elk for the first time you notice the signs of not current inhabitants but inhabitants of this area at one time in the form of the ruins of what looked like probably a small house off a little deeper into the woods. Uh, You know, I don't know what the building is supposed to look like. And so I think that I move in that direction. Um, I don't think I have the freedom to pass up any building that I come across, not knowing exactly what the building is that I'm looking for that has the information that I'm I'm seeking. Okay. So you start moving towards that building. The one thing we have to discuss briefly, yeah. uh, since your ruin went up, what is one thing about Orlin's appearance that shows that he has become a little bit more like the forest. I think that as he walks, 
towards the the uh, the ruins of this building. That as he was, you know, kneeling down, checking the animal earlier, making his way around, that his fingernails are all dark, and it's such a little thing. But noticing that that color difference in, you know, our fingernails versus you know, the talons of an animal or the, the claws of an animal that they seem opaque and rougher. And I think at first glance, it looks like just accumulated, you know, moss and dirt and dust from the time that he has been in this forest so far, but that as he's walking, you know, his hand brushes against his pant leg and we see that it kind of wipes it clean and it still looks almost talon like underneath the dirt and the grime that's awesome I, I, I like that a lot so you move closer to this building and as you get a little bit closer you notice you would guesstimate at least that it's a it looks like it's probably like I said a house mm. um, the the roof is is long gone the walls have mostly crumbled away, but it looks like you would guess probably that it was built maybe mid early to mid 19th century. Just kind of the way it was cobbled together. Like I said, most of the stones have kind of fallen away uh, from the walls and it's definitely overgrown and mossy and covered in vines, but it is still standing enough to know that this was roughly maybe like a 20 foot by 20 foot square building. It is, there are enough walls around still that you can't quite see what is in the middle of it. Yeah. I think that I make my way towards it to inspect what's inside to make sure, you know, this is awful close to the path to be what it is I'm looking for, but 20 other people could have made that same mistake. Like, Oh, it's, it can't possibly be here because this is this is too easy to access and perhaps no one just looked. Sometimes things get passed over because people just don't look. Yeah, certainly. So you approach and there is the one wall closest to where you're approaching. It does have a small section that looks like it probably was a window at some point. And you look into the the kind of square opening in the wall. And inside you don't see anything necessarily of interest on the inside. It is overgrown. You see a couple pieces of what look like they were probably hardwood flooring that have mostly kind of decomposed and rejoined the mulch on the ground. But you do see kind of beyond the far wall and a little bit further into the woods what looks like perhaps a statuary garden. It looks like a couple of statues that have been kind of wrapped in vines and covered in moss, but they have vaguely human figures. Yeah. I'm going to go out and, and look at them. Okay. You move around the building and you go out and you see, 
what looked like it's probably like seven or eight statues. And like I said, you think this might, the area around it was probably potentially a garden at one point that has given back over to the wildness of the forest with these statues. And all of them are wrapped in vines, kind of dirty and mossy and have some mushrooms growing off of them at various points. And you can't see any of the faces on the statues, but they kind of stand around this area that was probably once a human-tended garden. Okay. Yeah, I will look around. Yeah, I will get closer to them and look around the base of each one to see if there's any sign that they move or anything, if, if something could be hidden underneath these statues. Just kind of check the general places where people might hide something out here. Yeah, I think as you examine, they don't they don't look like they they look movable, but not necessarily easily so. Mm-hmm. But as you are examining a bit, you under the statue closest to the house, you find an old wrought iron key. That you would guess it's it's almost this weirdly human moment in the midst of what has been a pretty surreal trek into the woods that even potentially 100 or 150 or 200 years ago, people still hit a, a spare key in their garden. Yeah. And it is it's very rusted, but it is still intact. And. Under another one, you you find signs of you're not even quite sure how you would have found this because it is this has been a long time, but you find signs that like there was some digging underneath one of these statues. And you dig down a little bit and you find a few gold coins that look like they are easily 150 years old. Oh wow. I'm kind of covered in dirt. Like this might have been a, a rainy day fund buried underneath a statue. Hmm. But you think that they are probably between the age and the fact that they are made of gold are probably quite valuable. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I will tuck those into one of my pouch pockets. The key, I'm kind of glancing around, you know, obviously there's no door on the building. You know, there's this raw iron fence. I have this feeling that. You know, this key belongs to this building, and something seems a shame about taking it. I can't, I can't describe what, uh, but there's just something about, like, if I came to a building and it was burned down and I found, you know, a spare key hidden under the mat, it almost seems like some kind of very minor act of defilement to take that key away. I can't explain why. And so I think I put the key back, actually. I think that makes sense. I mean, you you haven't come to rob the people who lived here once. You right. Know, you were looking for something specific. And it just, it seems right to leave the key there. I yeah. I agree. So you leave the key. And where do you head? Can I see any other clearings in any direction from the garden. Uh, I know that it's pretty dense out here. 
Yeah, it is pretty dense, and it's starting to get darker now. It's probably about 5.30 or so. Yeah. Um, And so, looking up, you can see that the sun is still in the sky, though it's it's moving down the sky. But certainly in the deep of the woods, it is getting to look very much like dusk. But I think you do see... Kind of ahead, not what's in it, but you do see that um, further ahead, deeper into the woods and kind of the dying light of the woods, you do see that the there's an area coming up where the trees get thinner, which is odd because this is such a dense part of the forest. Yeah, I think I will head in that direction, just trying to get a sense of how deep into this uh, I am, and so if I can get to an area that's maybe a little less dense, uh, I can kind of take stock of direction and distance and just get a feel for where I'm at. Okay. So you leave the house and you walk to the garden and you kind of scout ahead a little bit. And just as you're about to leave the garden, Orlin notices that the moss and vines that were wrapped around one of the statues are gone. And the face staring at Orlin as he's about to leave this garden behind. It's the face of his brother. Thank you to Rev for playing on this episode of You Are Not Alone. Thank you to Jesse Ross for designing Trophy, which I repeat is an absolutely incredible game. Most importantly, thank you to all of you for listening. Our theme song is Everybody Knows My Name by Harley Poe. Thank you to Joe Whiteford for letting us use it. Join me on October 17th for part two of I'm Okay Right Now. Until then, remember that you are strong. You are beautiful. And you are not alone. Set them free.